Good morning, Genesis House. Let's stand and read the Word of God. Uh, we'll start at John chapter 13. And we'll read verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. God, we have two short verses that are just full of life application. Something Love is something that we struggle with, even as Christians. We, we wrestle with the flesh inside of us that wants to just be revengeful and give justice whenever we can. And but God, you gave us a different way. You modeled it through Jesus on the cross and through his life and three years of ministry. So I pray, Lord, that um, any areas in our lives where we have maybe fallen short of the way you want us to love, that you revealed to us today, myself included, and we can't shy away from your truth. We have to deal with it. And we, your goal for us is to look more like you in the way we live and speak and act in this world. And uh, if we understand what it is to love like you, we will make a difference. Uh, in the community of Okotoks and elsewhere. So I pray, God, that you uh, yeah, open our hearts and our minds to be willing to hear and receive the truth that you have today in Christ's name. Amen. Well, normally we go verse by verse through the scriptures, but today we're going to do something a little different. Uh, we, we, were, we left off at verse 31, and we would read from 31 to 38. Um, but I just chose two verses today, and that's because of the importance of the topic. The importance of the topic. If you picked it up already, it's this idea that Jesus gave these guys a new commandment, that they love one another, and he says, by this love, you will know that, that all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love in, in the way I want you to love. You know, the world's definition of love is, has, is radically different than the church's, and Sadly, though, for, for the church, in many instances, uh, the world's definition of love has crept in. And we as a church have failed to live out the exact love that God wants us to. So because of this, I want to spend our time on this topical sermon today, looking at the difference between what God asks us to do in terms of love versus what the world wants us to do in terms of love. So we're going to compare and contrast the similarities and differences so that when people talk about love in your workplace or within your families or with amongst friends or wherever you are, you understand the difference between God wants from you and what the world is asking from you. So let's begin in verse 34. The first thing I want you to notice that, that Jesus says is that regarding his love, this is a new commandment. You see that in 34? He says, a new commandment I give to you. If you were a disciple sitting in that room with Jesus that day, remember it was the Last Supper and he's just washed the feet and whatnot, and he's saying this is a new commandment. As a Jew who was a disciple, you'd be thinking, that's not a new commandment. That's in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19.18 commanded love for one's neighbor. So when Jesus said this is a new commandment, what was he meaning differently than already existed in the Old Testament? Well, first of all, it was a love focused within the community of believers. A love focused within the community of believers. You pick that up in 34. He says, that, uh, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. One another. Verse 35, by this all men, meaning the whole world, that goes outside the church, will know that you are my disciples. In other words, 
the world's going to know that you are belong to me by the way you love each other within the community of believers. So it's not that you couldn't live outside, love outside the community. He's saying the new commandment is I, there's a way in which I want you to love within the community that's going to be new and different. Secondly, it's a love specifically modeled after Jesus himself. You see that in 34. Uh, a new commandment I give you that you love one another even, if, even as I have loved you. So, again, the model for which they are to love one another within the community is Jesus, the way he has loved them up to this point. So, again, Jesus is clearly making a distinction to the disciples between a love that he wants them to have versus a love that, let's say, the world is going to have. So, because we are to live this out in our own lives, and Jesus commands us to love in this certain way, I want to explore more what he is asking of the disciples, therefore we know how to apply it to ourselves. And I want to try to accomplish three things with you today. First, I want you to understand the the definition, the Greek definition of the word here used by Jesus for love. Second, I want you to understand the essence of the nature of this love. And third, I want you to understand how to apply in your own lives this love. First, the definition. In our culture, we have one word for love. I remember talking to my dad. He lived in the Eskimo community. Well, I did too because I was his son. <laughs> but I was up there as well. But I was too small to remember this. I didn't speak Inuktitut or Eskimo. But the Eskimos had something like over 20 words for the word snow. So if I were to ask you, what's snow? You just think snow. Eskimo lives in a snowy environment. They have to distinguish for their own safety what kinds of snow it is to help them. Well, in our culture, there's one word of love. In the Greek culture, there's four words for love. Okay? So let's look at the definition of the kind of love that Jesus is asking these guys for. The first kind of love in the Greek language is eros, which is a sexual love uh, expressed in in intimacy between a a husband and a wife. Um, There's phileo, which is brotherly love. That's the love we'd experience between each other as friends. Uh, storge, this is a natural or familial love. This is like a between a parent and a child, like that sort of like love that you just normally have for your child because they're yours, right? And agape, which is self-sacrificial love. This is a type of love that happens between spouses, parents to children, and specifically, it's the way God loves his son, Jesus. It's the way God loves us. Um, interesting, in John chapter 17, the word agape for love is used there as well. He says here, um, for this reason the Father loves me, this is Jesus speaking, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. In other words, Jesus is saying, God loves me, he agapes me this way. And that's the same kind of love that Jesus is commanding the disciples here and ultimately us to love in terms of one another. This is a self-sacrificial love. Which leads me to the second point then, which is the essence of his love, or the nature of his love, is to be self-sacrificial. So it was to be a love that was completely selfless, a love that came from a place of total humility, and this was to be the true mark of the disciples, and the true mark for us as well. Before I get into the third point though, I want to talk about a a particular theological debate that often comes amongst Christians. And uh, Roger and I have already talked about this before. Um, a couple times, but many of you may know this conversation, have heard this conversation, maybe this will be new to some of you, but it goes something like this. There's this idea within the non-Christian, that within the Christian community in certain theological camps, 
that non-Christians can ever truly agape love. A non-Christian can never truly sacrificially love. The only, that's only love that the followers of Jesus can have. And the reason is it's impossible to completely love self-sacrificially without the power of the Holy Spirit and being redeemed by God. Okay? Have, I don't know if you, have any of you heard this before? Theologically, in certain camps? No? Yes? <laughs> okay. Yeah. It still exists. Uh, you go on YouTube, you can find certain preachers and pastors will tell you that a non-Christian can never love like God. They can never love sacrificially. Well, what's interesting about this is that's not true. That's not true. Luke 6, chapter, 30, chapter 6, verse 32. Luke 6, 32. It says there, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. <coughs> What's interesting about that word, even sinners love those who love them, that's agape. That's not eros, that's not phileo, that's not storge, it's agape. The same love in John 10, 17 that God says, Jesus says, God loves me because I'm laying down my life. He's saying even sinners can agape those who love them back. So the similarities between God's love that he commands us and the non-Christian world's love is that they both can love self-sacrificially. They can. You've experienced it in your life. Come on. Right? Those of you who have a hard time with me saying this, you've experienced it. Your neighbor has brought you over a pie when you were um, sick. Or they've mowed your lawn when you were on holidays. Or they fixed your car for you uh, as a favor or, or helped you with a spare tire when you had a flat or, you know, um, taking your children for a couple hours when you wanted to go out to do go some groceries or run an errand. Like, it goes on and on. You've experienced self-sacrificial love from these people. Again, the problem though then, that we have to solve, if it's the same Greek word, agape, and Jesus and John has already said, well, there's a love that we want you to have that's different than the world, we have to solve that issue, right? If the same Greek word is used for the sinners as it is for the disciples in terms of agape, there has to, then there, that'd be, that would mean the love would be identical how it looks. But he's saying, no, 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 the way you love will look different from all men, and they'll recognize you as belonging to me. So we have to say, what's the key difference then between the self-sacrificial love? Well, the major difference between what God's asking and what the secular world's asking in terms of love is this ability to continually build, be self-sacrificial without the need for reciprocation. Without the need for reciprocation. Look at 32 in Luke again. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. So, they will sacrificially love as long as they're loved back. If you good, do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do that, do the same. Again, a sinner will, will do good to you as long as it's reciprocated back. 34. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is to that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Again, there's a, they will lend to you as long as they can get something back in return. So the key here you can see over and over and over is this example of a sacrificial love, but the difference is this. I will only 
uh, give back in the amount that I've received. Okay? So it's like an unspoken debt between two people when you're non-Christian. Um, it's like an unspoken debt. I'm going to do something for you. I'm not telling you you're indebted to me, but I believe you are. And I'm only going to love you back, self-sacrificially, if you love me back to, in some kind of way that I deem fit. And Dan, you've know, those of you who've been around Dan a lot know this analogy, but he uses the love bank analogy, and it's a good analogy, so it's, it's not new to many of you, but it's new to some of you. It's an idea of this love bank where one person has a love bank account, the other person has a bank account full of love. And this is the, this is the world's love, a secular love. This is not the Christian love. So you're full of this love money, I guess you could say. And if you make a deposit of, say, $5 of love into someone else's account, that person will gladly accept it, but you as the person who's given the money needs $5 back. You need 5 bucks back in some way that you deem fit to re as a repayment. It, you might do it again for another 5 and another 5, but after a while, if you're not getting anything back, you're going to stop loving that person in that bank account. Because they're going to have a ton of money, and you're going to be bankrupt. And so, the secular love, non-Christian love, all it can be is a return. I'll love you as long as you love me, and if you put money in my account, I'll put money in yours. And if that doesn't occur for uh, over and over, or continually, eventually love stops. And that's why he says in Luke 6, even sinners love those who love them back. But then he keeps saying in all these categories, but what credit is that to you? As a Christian, in other words, if you do that, if you only love those who love you back and lend to those who love you back and so on, there's no credit to you in that, because anyone can do that. But Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to a higher standard of love. There's more I expect out of you than just that. And then he gives them the answer here in 35. He says, love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. So Christian love is different than secular love in that there's no expectation of return. And he slams them on the head of the nail and a hammer because he says, here's why. For he himself, speaking of God, is kind and ungrateful to evil men. That's in verse 35. If you can love, lend, be, do good to kind and ungrateful men, just like God does, you will be sons of the Most High. And John, he says, you will be my disciples if you love one another in this way. You can see why uh, secular relationships can't very easily. Why family members can't get along. Why co-workers can't get along. Why friendships end. Why marriages end. Because there's an expectation of return. And Jesus says, that's not what it is to be a follower of me. That's not how we're to operate. And of course... He commanded the disciples to love them in this way because that's exactly how he had loved them. Right? That's exactly how he loved them. Which leads us to our third and final point. How did Jesus love them? Now, when I was studying this, it was very interesting. When you ask, when people talk about Jesus' self-sacrificial nature, you'd always say, well, yeah, it's shown on the cross. Obviously, it's shown on the cross. I'm in full agreement with that. Um, that is the pinnacle of his love and his self-sacrificial love without expecting anything in return. But there was something that caught my eye in my study this week. Look at verse 34 back in John. So go John 13, back to 34. I want to look at the application of this love. 
John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved, past tense, you. Not uh, even uh, a love that I will, um, uh, that I will show you. It's a, a love that I have shown you. So I started thinking in my head, yes, the cross is only 24 hours away in this passage, and it's the ultimate pinnacle of his love. But I thought, there must be a way that I can see in the three years of ministry how he's loved these men up to this point. Because he's saying, the disciples don't know he's going to be crucified yet. And he's saying this to them, I've given you enough of, a, not, enough of a model up to this point in my ministry that you should already know how to love apart from the cross. You catch that? That's a really significant observation. Um, a new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you. So I started thinking, can I find examples in Scripture of how Jesus has already modeled love towards them that they would be able to, even if he didn't die, from this point on, know how to love one another? And the answer is yes. And we're going to look at that now. Um, but what I want to do is I want to turn with you first to 1 Corinthians 13 because here Paul gives us a description of the characteristics of love that we are to have. And I'm going to contrast what Paul's saying we should have as Christians in 1 Corinthians 13 and show you how Jesus actually fulfilled those characteristics in his three-year ministry. Okay? You need to know that when he says, model your love after me, that when Paul gives his 1 Corinthians list, it's not some kind of pie-in-the-sky thing that's impossible. We're going to look at Jesus' life and go, my goodness, he modeled 1 Corinthians 13 in his three years of his life. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll go through these characteristics, okay? So, um, let me find it here in my Bible. Starting at verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Let's take the first virtue. Love is patient. I know I'm stating the absolute obvious here, but sometimes the obvious is worth saying. Uh, the opposite to patience is impatience. Uh, I got tested this morning with that hour time change trying to get to church on time with the family getting ready. Um, it sucks when um, the very thing you're teaching on, God is testing you on that very same morning. But uh, anyway, all of you would understand what it is to be impatient. We become impatient with one another when our point of view, um, from, when from our point of view, um, other people fail to meet our expectations, and so therefore we feel the need to put them in their place for it. We complain against them, right? Impatience is you think someone should meet your expectations, and so they're not, so you complain against them. Right? Uh, that's, that's what impatience is. But as a follower of Jesus, he says, love is not like that. Love is different. And again, if anyone could have been impatient, it was Jesus. His disciples were constantly frustrating and slow to get it. For example... He taught them for three years on humility on more than one occasion. Right? Taught them on humility. But in Luke 9.46, an argument uh, breaks out between the men on who's the greatest. 
And what does he do? He brings a child in front of them and says, the one who is least among you is the greatest. In Matthew 23, 10, after witnessing hypocrisy in the Pharisees who sought public praise, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So two great teachings. And what happened in the night of the washing of the feet? We talked about this about two, three weeks ago. Nobody got up to serve. If anything, Jesus could have stood up and go, what's wrong with you stupid people? I've taught you in this for three years, and you don't get it. You don't get it. I'm sitting here with dirty feet, you're all sitting, and no one's doing anything. How slow are you? I mean, we would be tempted in those moments after teaching people over and over and over ways we want them to understand life, and they're not doing it. Our tendency is to get impatient and complain and be frustrated. And he doesn't do anything. He gets up and he models in front of them without a word spoken how to still be a servant in that context. <coughs> how about the area of love is kind? Um, I learned this when Dan did his sermon series in 1 Corinthians about six years ago in Pine Ridge. Um, but uh, kindness, the biblical definition of kindness is free, unmerited, self-giving action that benefits another person with no expectation of return. Okay? Did Jesus ever give free, unmerited, self-giving action that benefit another person with no expectation of return outside of the cross? All the time. Mark chapter 1. The city of Galilee gathers at his door. And it says actually in Mark chapter 1, the whole city gathered at his door. There was between hundreds and thousands of people outside waiting for him. Jesus healed them all that, came, that he could get his hands on. Drove various diseases out of them and demon, possessed, uh, demon possessions. Here's the thing. He knew the majority of them were not going to commit his life to him. He knew that. He knew that. It didn't stop him from saying, well, because you're not committing your life to me, no healing for you, no demon possession for you. He was kind to them regardless that he knew he'd ultimately be put on the cross because of them. I love it. I was, I thought, I was thinking my life, uh, um, even with the example of the cross, so I was thinking, I wonder if the Bible describes uh, the cross as kindness in terms of how we, God treats us. And I, was like, and I was like, I think it does. And then I found this one. 1 Peter 2, uh, 1-3, he defines the cross as God's kindness. Um, uh, he says, uh, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. He links salvation and kindness of the Lord in one category. Again, the cross was free, unmerited, self-giving action that benefits us with no expectation of return. God was kind to us in the cross, and he modeled that in his own life in, in Jesus by healing demon people and demon possessions and feeding people all the time and whatnot with no expectation of return. And for us, we struggle to show kindness to people who don't recognize when we're kind to them. Be honest, the hardest people to be kind to is when you do something and they do nothing back in terms of a word of thanks, an action of, 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 of recognition. We all want recognition. Jesus says, that belongs to the world. What credit is that to you if you love in that way? He says, you love and be, un, be kind to, un, to evil and ungrateful men, like Luke 6 says, just as the Father has demonstrated for you and done for you. How about love keeps no record of wrongs in 1 Corinthians? 
When you keep a record of wrongs, you have a spirit of unforgiveness. You're keeping a diary of the who screwed you list. That's what keeping a record of wrongs is. Jesus never did that. Remember in Luke 9.51, he's going to Jerusalem. He goes through Samaria. And the Samaritans tell him, get out of here, Jesus. We don't want you here. Get out of here. And the disciples, recognizing this, want to take vengeance on them. They want to call down thunder or fire from heaven to smoke, smoke these people. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, right on, disciples, you got it. They've wronged me. I should be here. They've wronged me. Let me. Let's kill them. He says. He turns to the disciples and rebukes them for their attitudes. He had no bitterness held toward the Samaritans, despite that. How about even uh, Peter denying him in Luke, Luke 22? He's the sp- chief spokesperson for the disciples. He's in cro- close relationship with him, with Jesus, one of his best friends, and he denies him three times. He, didn't, he outright denies him. Imagine you having a, your, one of your closest friends just outright denying their relationship to you and like basically saying they don't know you, want nothing to do with you. You'd be so hurt. And Jesus, in his, when he predicts Jesus' denial, Peter's denial, he says, he doesn't say to him, by the way, when you do that, you're never going to teach again. I'm never going to forget what you did to me. He says, you'll, he didn't say that. He says, Peter, exact words, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In other words, Peter, I'm not keeping a record of your denial of me. When you return to me, and when you, and when, when you, like, um, like, you know, uh, go through your period of remorse and your guilt over what you've done and repent, later on I'm going to use you again for great things. There's no record of wrongs with me. And again, the most incredible example is the crucifixion. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Again, uh, we all want justice. We all want justice for the wrongs done to us, and we all want to keep a record. To model ourselves after Christ in terms of love is this desire or this need not for justice in everything we've been wronged against. We don't need to always have this attitude that vengeance has to be taken out on somebody else. And um, I think of a really cool thing in my own life, and a you know, I was talking again with, I think, Roger and Evan about this uh, this week when we were hanging out together. Um, you know, in my marriage, uh, when I first got married in the first year and a half, like, we went through a living hell. And it was probably the worst year and a half, one of the worst, worst one year and a half years of my life. Apart from Jesus Christ, would have been divorced. I'm sure of it. But, man, was I good at keeping a record of wrongs. I mean, you know, we would say we for, we'd say we'd try to say sorry and apologize to one another, but really deep down inside, there was still that record kept. So we, we it was like face value. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, face value. The things are good, but then there's still that underlying like record of wrong that you're like, it's not really good. I'm just waiting for the next bomb to drop. And as the years went by, and like her and I matured, and we both healed, especially me. Um, I can honestly say that like, there is no more record-keeping in our, in our marriage. In fact, Denise even sometimes will say to me, do you remember that time we had this and that? And I'm like, I can't even remember that. Right? There's absolutely no record-keeping in, in our marriage. But again, not when, I was, when I, we first got married, that wasn't the case. When I was immature and didn't understand the Lord's ways. To, I was a Christian, but I was just really immature. I, was key, I would love to keep records of wrongs. And, and Jesus said, you can't do that as a follower of me. You can't. 
It's not part of who I am. That's what the secular world does. There's no credit to you if you just love your wife and she loves you back. There's no credit to you for that. <laughs> How about love hopes for all things? In 1 Corinthians 13, in verse 7. When we view people without hope, what we do is we do this. We say, we recognize the faults in that person, and then we lock them into those faults. Right? If I think that uh, Blake has no hope, I'm, that's because I see something in him now that I think is not going to ever change, and so I write him off as a guy that's never going to change. <laughs> it's that you always language kind of thing. You're always going to be like this. They're always going to be like that. And we always, and in that kind of thinking, you always presume on people's motivations, right? Aren't we all good at that? When someone ever does something, and and because they're always like that, don't we already know why they did it? If I were to ask you, when that person hurt you, why did they do that? You'd say, here's why they hurt me, and then you find out later that they didn't actually do it for those reasons. Again, Janice and I went through this a lot, where, and I mean this, I mean this with 100% accuracy. Sometimes we use you always language, but don't mean you always. I mean always, without a fail. Every time Denise and I fight, I already know in my head why she hurt me. I know it. I've, got, I've, I've ascribed all the motivations behind it. When we sit down and we're mature and we talk about it, it's never been to the degree that I thought it was behind our motivations. Ever. Have you ever been in a spat with your, with your spouse or something or someone close to you? And after you talk, you realize, man, that blew up way more than it needed to. You, we've all ascribed and put no hope on that person because we've, we've already presumed that we know what they're thinking and why they're doing it. And Jesus says, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. Remember the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6? He knew they were all following him with the wrong motivations. He knew it. You, came, you want me to uh, um, be king. And you want me to give you bread and fish and water on a daily basis and they want me to feed you. You're following me with the wrong motivations. And yet he turns to them and hope and says, here, I know you're working for the wrong thing here. Work for, work for the food that comes to eternal life. In other words, believe in me. I know you're goofy in your thought processes towards me. And I know that it seems like there's no hope in you because of the way you act towards me. But believe in me. He's giving them open opportunity to be in this relationship. He's not locking them in to this never kind of change kind of people. The woman caught in adultery. She had multiple partners, probably. And if she didn't, she definitely got caught in that one night. And he doesn't lock her into her behavior and say, you're, you're an adulterer, you're never going to change. He says, uh, no one's condemned you here today, and neither do I. So please go and sin no more. Whether she did or not, we don't know. But he says, I see, I see more for you than your future than being an adulterer. His friends were not just people like Mary and Martha who were followers of Jesus. His friends were tax, collect tax collectors and sinners. He hung out with people with quote-unquote no hope, according to the Jewish culture. I'll show you uh, with you my biggest, uh, this is probably one of my biggest issues in my own life, was locking people into a certain category, then I put no hope on them. And I want to share with you how I uh, changed in my, in my thinking. And it was actually started in Kentucky with that conversation with Dennis Kinlaw, and I've shared it before, where this professor who's got a library named after him at the seminary was sitting across the table for me, and he said to me, Andrew, oh, well, he was about 89 at the time, so he'd been a Christian for like 75 years or something. He says to me, you know, you know who God is? And I'm like, oh boy, here's a giant question. He goes, 
I did not answer because I was afraid to answer in front of a professor. <laughs> he's like, God is love. God is love. And he's like, that's not what he does. That's who he is. And after that, my theology about God completely changed. You see, if you look at God as love, if you look at God as love, you see people as created in the image of God. So when the sperm and an egg come together and unite, God supernaturally puts a soul in that embryo. He puts a soul in that, in that embryo and becomes life. Think about that now. He has to give them a spirit. He has to give them a soul. So here's the thing. God says, I'm creating you as a human being in the image of God. If you look at God that way, he looks at the value of a person apart from their behavior. If you look at people without hope, you're saying this, I'm determining you by your behavior and not you as a value of a person. If you understand God as love and you understand people as being created in the image of God, you will look at all people, not just unbelievers, but even those within the Christian community that rub you the wrong way, differently. You won't lock them in. Because you'll see them as someone created in the image of God, that God loves, that the cross is for, and then you will, he'll help you put up with one another differently when, with their idiosyncrasies that drive you crazy. <laughs> okay? So again, uh, this, this idea of hope and, and seeing, not locking people in is exactly what Jesus does. And this is what he's calling us to do as well. Let's finish uh, with one more. How about love does not seek its own? Love does not seek its own, found in verse 5. When you seek your own interests and in love, you put your own desires above others. Right? It's all about your preferences over, one, over someone else's. And Jesus says... Uh, I am going to have nothing to do with this. Remember in John chapter 12, 27, we looked at him saying, my soul has become troubled, but what should I say, Father, save me from this hour? Everything in his flesh is saying, put yourself, Jesus, your own needs above humanity's. Don't go to the cross. Don't go. Put your needs first. Don't go. And he has anxiety and troubledness over this. He says, no, but my, your will, God, be done, not mine. Again, ultimately, the cross was the epitome of Jesus not seeking his own. But he showed it in three years as well prior to the cross through that example. I mean, he did it in the washing of the feet, right? He's a rabbi. In Jewish culture, rabbis never wash feet. That's for the slave. He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. He's not just a rabbi. He's the Messiah, God's spoken prophet. Or he's the, he's the one that the prophecies are going to speak about in the Old Testament. Here he is taking the lowliest of positions, putting the interests of the disciples above his own. And I think this is one of the hardest areas for us to do. We're all wired to take care of ourselves and own, own interests first. Let's be honest. And that's why for those of us in the men's study, know Philippians 2, 3 very well. Paul has to say, I know you guys are a bunch of self-centered people, so do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have the attitude in yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. So let me ask you some questions. And this applies to me. So if I use you language, I'm actually including myself. So don't feel singled out. <laughs> but I want to speak to you, the kids in this room, in terms of putting your own interests above others and, and trying to model your love after Jesus. When kids come over to play with you and play in your house, or even amongst your brothers and sisters, 
Do you make them just play the games that only you want to play? <laughs> Good one, Gigi. Okay. 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 Well, keep, keep hold on to that thought. Yeah. So do you make them play games only you want to play? And if, if children suggest other games, do you say, uh-uh, I'm not playing? In other words, if it's not your way, you don't even play with them. You just go off on your own in, the, in, in independence. Well, this is a good sermon, buddy. <laughs> Thanks for your honesty. Right? Right? Or, I mean, the, again, we, we are to put our own... In, wouldn't it be great if adults did that, too, in their church? <laughs> That's why Jesus says, come to me like little children. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to get my thoughts back here now. Uh, That's what happens when someone pulls a rug from under your feet. <laughs> Again, though, back to the kids analogy, that, or not kids, not example. As children, God would say this to you. Think about the other people that come over to your house to play with you. Think about what they would want, what they would enjoy. Don't just play on your terms. Put their interests above your own. Even with, especially within, it's easier for sometimes kids to get along better with other kids than within their own family. As between brothers and sisters, play on your sister's terms, the things they want to play, not just what you want to play. And if they don't want to play your games, don't treat them any differently. Don't go off sulking and, and, and things like that. Play on their terms. This is what Jesus is saying. Love, I, I love and I, I love and seek um, uh, other people's interests on their terms. And I don't need anything back in expectations. And he's saying that to children. How about parents? In the home, does life work on your terms? The movies that get watched, are they your favorites? The food you eat, are they your favorites? The, the play you get involved in, the family outings, the vacations, are they all in your interests? Are they all your scheduled preferences? Here's an interesting one. How about conversations amongst other Christians? When you have conversations, do the most of the conversations center around yourself? Is it all about you and your life? So if you walk up, say, you know, hey Gigi, how you doing? I'm doing great. Well, let me tell you what happened to me this week. And I go off for 30 minutes about my life. Or do you ever engage on their terms to find out who they are and what they like, even if it's not what you want to, like even if things that you're not interested in, just to put them ahead of yourselves? I have a lot of stories because as all these apply to me, but I'll never forget this. I'm on the houseboat. I'm standing at the glass of the front of the houseboat. We're all driving into the Sycamus at the end of the trip on a Sunday morning. And we're all, uh, everyone who's on the houseboat knows the scene. We're all sort of piled at the front deck or on top, and we're all just sort of staring at the beauty of the Sycamus Lake. That is wonderful. Sorry. Yeah. And we're... Uh, don't worry about it, guys. We can get it after. Yeah. Anyway, we're, we're sitting there, and um, a guy walks up to me. You, you, those, you know who Paul Mitchell is, hey? Some of you know who Paul is? Paul comes up to me about, this is about eight, nine years ago, and I'm standing at the glass, and he goes, can I, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. He goes, uh, I want to say something. I really noticed a change in you this year uh, on, this, on this trip, because he didn't, you know, I had to be going to the... We hadn't seen each other much. He goes, I've noticed a change in you. And I said, oh, really? He goes, what? He goes, my experiences with you in the last couple of years is every time we got together, you always talked about yourself. And he says, in this trip, I said, I almost never heard you talk about yourself. You took interest in everybody else. Now, that takes guts for him to say that. 
But I was like, I didn't take it as an insult. I saw, oh my goodness, like Jesus Christ has totally changed my life. Because I became not, I, I was not so worried about anymore about what I was doing and who I was. I couldn't wait more to find out about other people to know where they were at. Isn't that a powerful story? I mean, he's saying you are not interested in anymore so much about you and your story being heard. You want to hear about other people. That's about the kind of love that Jesus wants us to live out as followers of him. And it's a love that's to be carried out in the community of believers. Let's finish by looking at verse 35 now of John chapter 13. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Want me to wash your feet, too? Yeah, with coffee. <laughs> this is where a podcast would be, the video would be better than the recorder, so people knew what was going on right now. Okay, got it. If it wasn't a nice floor, nobody, everyone would have just left it. <laughs> if it was my house, it would be like, ah, just let it stay in there. I'll just add to the, add to the decor of the rest of the carpet. <laughs> The mosaic. The mosaic, yeah. <laughs> Joseph's coat. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's look at the love that we commenced this in verse 35. He says, by this, if you love in this way, like the way I've modeled to you in the last three years, outside of the cross, if you love in this way, all men will know that you are my disciples. The world outside will know you belong to Jesus Christ if you love each other in this way. Why? Because the world doesn't love in that way. And when they look into the community, they're going to go, what kind of a God are they serving? What kind of testimony is that to the church? It's an incredible uh, testimony to the outside world. So it's imperative then we learn how to model Jesus' love to one another, not just on Sundays, but in our homes, at work. In, the, in our recreation activities and so on. And it's commanded of us in other parts of Scripture. I mean, 1 John 4.11, Beloved, so the Christian community, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Galatians 6.10, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. In other words, there's a priority system here. That God of the church community first loved in that arena before anywhere else. There's a priority system. You know, Glenn uh, from RMCC, where some of you have come from, I, I heard him speak on this, and he said a really cool one-liner I really like. He said, because our greatest witness to the world is how we love within their church, that's the reason for why Satan has to come after us. Because Jesus no, no, wants us to love this way as a testimony to the world, no wonder Satan wants to disrupt the church. Because he can destroy our testimony to the rest of the world. And that means we have to individually form our own internal rebellion against Satan. Right? You all have to individually form your own internal battle against him. Because all of these areas in your love categories are going to get pushed to want to go the world's way and not God's. The biggest battle is not from the outside world in our church. It's from the inside. It's the inside of you and inside our community. That's why Satan wants to come after our church and destroy it. It's why in our own Christian communities we have to figure out how we love one another in our work, in our friendships, in our marriages, amongst our siblings. We need to embrace and live out all the characteristics of love that Paul tells us in Corinthians. So I want to finish with this. 
I want to ask you a few questions to closely examine yourself. And this goes for me too. I'm not off the cuff. Uh, especially this week, God's revealed to me that patience is my number one struggle in the love bank. He's made it very clear this week. So I'm not off the hook. Okay? Let me ask you this in terms of friendships. Let's say somebody new, this is hypothetical. Let's say somebody new walked into Genesis house. And there's an opportunity for you for them to be your for them to be your friend. If God was to say, okay, that person is an identical clone to you in every way, would you then have any area of leeriness in them being friends with you? So theoretically, a new person comes in and God says, by the way, they exhibit your behavior in every way, the way you think and the way you act. Would you, knowing that, have any category in your life that you'd be afraid that they might hurt you in the category of love? Would they, would, is there any area of patience? Is there any area in your character with hope? Any area of keeping a record of wrongs? Any area of seeking your own interests first? Any of those things that make you leery for friendship? If there is, God has something to say to you today. How about marriage? Don't yell this out like Josiah. <coughs> if, would you want anybody in this church, that all the married couples here, would you want anyone in, in our church to have your exact marriage? Would you want anyone in our church to have your exact marriage? So if, I, if a video camera was to follow you for one month, everything you thought, said, and did, would you want to say, I would love to pass that on to the, another family in our church and say this is exactly what it's going to look like for you to be married as a Christian? If the answer is yes in certain areas, wonderful. If the answer is no, God is saying, there's something in the area of love that I want to talk to you about. And I would suggest this is a great springboard for those of you who are married to talk to your spouse. What a great opportunity now to say, man, I recognize some things. Let's have a conversation about the area of love we need to improve on. Because the world is watching and the world wants to see our marriages as a testimony. How about those of you with brothers and sisters? This gets more to the kids again. If, a parent, if your parents adopted... Another kid into your family. If the parents adopted another kid, would you be fearful or grateful if those that children coming into the family had the exact same characteristics as you? Would there be anything you would say to your parents, please don't, I don't want them to be my brother or sister because they have no patience. They always play on their own terms. They always think of themselves and so on and so forth. Or would you say, you know what, I would gladly have them come in as a brother or sister because I, am, I would freely welcome them because I exhibit the characteristics of the love of God. These are really important questions to ask ourselves. Because the Genesis house is going to make an impact in the Okotoks. Part of it starts, well, not part of it, it starts in the community of our church. Verse 35. All men will know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Again, none of us have a perfect list here. I get that. But that reveals to us why we need a savior and a teacher like Jesus to retrain us. And Jesus is saying to us, I recognize that maybe you felt like you've fallen short in some areas, but it doesn't have to stay this way and be this way. You can model yourselves after me. And unlike the secular love bank where the account easily runs dry, because I loved you and I died on the cross for you and dealt, for, dealt with your sins, 
without any expectation of return. It doesn't have to be the same for you. You can love freely because I give you the power to love without expectation. Just remember your own testimony. Whenever you don't want to love the way God asks, He did that to you first. He didn't, there's nothing you did expectation-wise that met Him. And yet He died on the cross for you 2,000 years ago before you were born, even though you're going to sin against Him. And so that's great motivation to, to understand that God knows exactly <coughs> what He's asking of us because He did it. He did it. I'll, I'll leave you with a quote. Uh, Leon Morris said, A community has been created on the basis of Jesus' Jesus's work for us, and there is a new relationship now that has to be lived out in that community. He is not asking us to do anything that he himself had not done. Let's finish with the lessons. Okay, we'll, we'll go through these quick. First lesson, non-Christian people can genuinely love. There's some theological camps out there that says they can't self-sacrificially love. The same word is agape. My only, oh, my only statement to that person is, you do the Greek work, and then you tell me how to answer that when the word's identical. The word's identical. They can self-sacrificially love. You've experienced it in your own lives from non-Christian people. However, there's a caveat, lesson two. Even though non-Christians can love, their love is limited to reciprocation. It will only be given back to you as long as you give it to them. As soon as they feel their love bank is running dry, they will stop. And that is the distinguishing feature that differentiates God's love from a secular world's love. Yes, they can both be sacrificial, but there's a sacrificial clause. I'll only be, continue to be self-sacrificial as long as you return something to me. Once you don't, I'm out. That relationship is done. I won't go there anymore. Lesson three. Christian love can be defined as self-sacrifice towards another for their benefit with no expectation of return. Again, what I love about this is that that's the cross for sure. But Jesus says to the disciples, I want you to model yourselves after me how I've already loved you. No cross yet. So I've given you three years of examples of every category of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. And that's what I've done. And you've seen it. Now copy me. Uh, lesson four. And the final lesson. Jesus commands us as believers to love one another as he of love does as a testimony to the world. Right? Love one another so that all men know that you are my disciples. He wants a communal love between us. A love that's totally different than the world that can be distinguished and distinct. And uh, I know sometimes that might be a little bit scary for us in terms of a pressure thing, but there is no pressure in that. We just have to like model ourselves after the Lord and let Him do the rest of the work. But again, this is also a challenging sermon because I hope that we all recognize that there's certain areas that we have to rethink in our marriages, you know, how we act as a boss, an employee, uh, as a brother and sister, and within our friendships.